0: I'm your host, Dr. Ned Hoke, a veteran in natural methods healthcare, speaking with you today from Sonoma Valley, California, for an hour of health topic digestion and discussion. Please stay with us. Welcome back to Health Matters. Dr. Ned Hoke, today we'll be having the opportunity to visit with Dr. Malika Fair, the senior director of the uh, Health Equity Partnerships Program at the American Medical College Society. So after that, we'll hope to, uh, it, depending on how that conversation goes, we'll move to the end of the hour. We'll be trying to get into a conversation about living well at others' expense. This is the name of a new book by Stephen Lesinick, and the hidden costs of Western prosperity is a kind of a challenging read on the, um, the dynamics of global inequity. So that will be our the second part of our program. We're not just sure exactly what time that will start, but please stay tuned for that. So hold on for a minute. We'll be back with you shortly, and we'll be talking to Dr. Malika Fair on why my community is suffering. Thank you, be right back. Bye. And welcome back to Health Matters. Dr. Ned Hoke today joined by Dr. Malika Fair. She's the Senior Director of Health Equity Partnerships and Programs at the uh, Association of American Medical Colleges. So welcome, Malika Fair.
1: Thank you. It's a pleasure to be on the
0: show. So, uh, Dr. Fair, um, maybe we should start right away and talk about what is the Senior Director of Health Equity Partnerships, what does that mean? What do you actually do?
1: Great question. So my job is to support the faculty members, the education deans, uh, the CEOs of the hospitals, and our students, our learners across the continuum, in their efforts to improve health equity in our country. Um, that includes the supporting the education efforts of what's being taught in the curriculum, as well as their experiential learning opportunities the opportunities that our learners get, and helping our our leaders, our faculty members, teach those concepts. As well as helping them engage with our local communities.
0: Mm-hmm. Sounds like um, a knitting pro- project. It, it, it's it, so the, the the socialization and the development of the social community of certainly the medical uh, environment and of course the the, the professionals as well as the lay public. That that whole knitting is a is a is a vital ongoing function. And uh, I guess I had never heard of this particular uh i i been a long time since i was part of a university situation so i i i I didn't know such positions existed so we're we're glad (laughs) that you are busy doing that so how much of that has to do with um the issue of black and brown people and and bias is is that a great big chunk of it or or is or is it much much broader than that
1: it definitely includes it. You know, we approach these issues very holistically and mm-hmm. wanting to make sure that the those who are working at our medical schools and our teaching hospitals uh, understand some of the com- the complex issues that it goes into taking care of patients. You want to take care of the patient in front of you, but you also have to take a step back and make sure that you are taking care of the entire population mm. and that even if everyone is getting better health outcomes and they're improving, you could have a part of the population that's actually getting worse, and that's where bias comes in, and that's where stereotypes and not having diversity, not having inclusion, not understanding what health equity is and and how to incorporate that into your practice. That's why it's so important, Um, and we help to promote some of these concepts um, within our, our medical schools and our teaching hospitals.
0: So, okay, let's see if I'm understanding correctly. So you're saying that you're working with your student population by and large, and what you're doing is you're assisting them and their recognition of the unique uh, and possibly un- unexplored situation. I mean, when I was in medical school, uh, there was no classes about a, a bias, that I was, at least not one that I went to anyway. Uh, and so... Um, so the people you are working directly with are physicians-to-be? You're working with students, by and large? Or are you are working more with institutions? Actually, we're working with... More with institutions. Both. Mm-hmm.
1: Both, right? So we're working with the faculty members who are teaching courses around bias, discrimination, uh, health equity, health disparities. We're also working with very motivated students that want to change things on the ground. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have student groups that contact us that ask for ideas of how to incorporate this and be champions in their own institutions. Um, But, you know, our members are the actual medical schools and the teaching hospitals, but our constituents are the faculty and the learners um, who work in those institutions. And we work with, with all of them to achieve this. We're not prescriptive, so we don't mandate that there is, Two hours of bias training for every student. Well, that, was, that was
0: kind of where yeah. I was. That was that was, that was what exactly I was kind of important. wondering about. That was what I was wondering about. I was wondering <laughs> if this was the, you know the, uh, the check the box kind of thing. Uh, so, are you just part of GW, or is this a, a much bigger? I mean, American Association of American Medical Colleges sounds like a big thing. But you're also a, a practitioner at GW. So, is 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 GW? Obviously, your work sounds like it goes much beyond the, the confines of GW.
1: It does. So I actually have two jobs. I thought it was really important for me to maintain my clinical practice. Mm-hmm. So my main job is at the Association of American Medical Colleges, but I'm very fortunate, like other physicians in our building, that they also practice medicine, and I'm also on faculty at GW, uh, where I work with the residents and the medical students, taking care of patients in the ER, and also helping the students understand professional development and, and you know, how, what it means to go through medical school.
0: Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's a big topic as well. So... In the literature that I have from your publicist people, it talks about your personal story, going back to the large church family in Detroit, Michigan, and and the the consequence of the COVID-19 on the leaders of your church. Talk a little bit, of our listeners, about that and, and kind of how that informs what your your current uh, thoughts are today. Right, so
1: I'm from Ypsilanti, uh, Michigan, which is outside of Detroit, and I'm part of the largest um, African American Protestant denomination in the country, um, called Church of God in Christ, and within a really short period of time, less than two months, we lost 30 of our bishops, which are the wow. um, the highest ranking uh, clergy in our in our organization. One of the bishops is Bishop P. A. Brooks who I grew up under his jurisdiction, and I actually got my first opportunity to give a big speech in his church. Mm-hmm. He also passed away of COVID-19. Mm. My father's a pastor. He lost seven of his close friends, one of which is a cousin. So we took it really hard, and I, this is you know, a personal example. It's an example from our church, but it's not uncommon that we saw across the nation in black and brown communities where populations were being decimated really quickly um, at the beginning of this pandemic, and it hasn't stopped.
0: Mm-hmm. You know, we we certainly have seen a lot of, of uh, different opinions about the the basis of why it is that that black and brown folks are are getting uh, hit as hard as they are, and the I would say the consensus of the people that I've interviewed, and and I, I myself have not had any because I've not been practicing, and I haven't had any myself hands-on immediate contact. But the word I'm getting is that there's a, there's a, quite a variety of of of, of causative factors, so-called, and and of course in your literature here it talks about the the, the ones that are commonly spoke of, the, spoken of, the chronic conditions of diabetes, cardiovascular disease, hypertension, but also uh, other uh, people are saying well, these are practitioners. They're saying that, that the that the black and brown communities part of what makes them so susceptible is is that they're they are as a group susceptible. That is, they have what they call threat, and they have elevated uh, steroid, or the uh, cortisol hormones, stress hormones. And so they're, because of their their position, their status in the society, that really this this one particular practitioner was saying, he, it was his opinion that the black and brown folks were, were getting far more uh, uh, death and dying uh, well, I not I should, I'm putting words in his mouth. Not far more, but a, 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 certainly a large companion of the of the chronic conditions is the the status of the people involved. So, what do you say about that?
1: I, I agree with your um, colleague that you interviewed. It's a very complex issue, and so we we know that it's easy to say that there are. An, increased number of chronic conditions in black and brown communities which is true but you just can't stop there
0: because
1: right. you have to understand you know what causes some of these chronic conditions and a lot of them are influenced by these social determinants of health you know where we live we work where we play but we can't stop there either because where communities live especially influenced by segregation didn't just happen on its own Um, it's because of systemic racism in our society where people work and limits in employment advancement, you know, there's, there's due to systemic racism in our society. And even perceived racism, so how you internalize that, can impact how your body, as you mentioned, um, processes and, and produces cortisol, which makes it difficult to lose weight, which can increase your blood pressure. So, you know, this is it's not an easy, there's no one silver bullet here, and there's no one easy fix. But it's important for the medical community to understand that it's it's not just chronic conditions; that um, right. there are some societal issues that we have to address, including systemic racism, um, to to ameliorate some of these health inequities. Mm.
0: Well, it the and, and of course, I'm glad to hear you say that because, of course, the that that certainly aligned with my suspicion that the uh, underlying socioeconomic status and and what we just what what you just said and what I just said before that. Were really you know foundational situations that that are the underneath the diabetes underneath the cardiovascular disease underneath hypertension and so that's what makes this conversation potentially so important for our listeners to be aware of and so when they hear the media saying well these are just a black, bunch of black people that are too fat and they're not taking their meds uh, this is not a good answer to that to that that persp- perspective um, so. Uh, it says here we must ask ourselves two vital questions: What part are we playing in creating and are exacerbating sustained disparities, and what steps can we take to rectify the unjust and disheartening disparities, both in COVID nineteen and other illnesses? So that's a great big sweeping world to talk about. So let's break into that some some part of that. What what break it down a little bit for us, if you would, in terms of as you as you do your work and descri- describing. The um, the exacerbating and and sustaining health disparities, uh, without just identifying it with a bunch of words. Tell us some stories about what what your people are telling you, and kind of how that plays itself out into this large topic. Sure.
1: You know, when I asked those questions in that article, what I was really thinking was, you know, addressing systemic racism is everyone is everyone's responsibility. And it includes the medical community. You know, mm. We are not immune to this as mm. well. Okay. And we have played a role in making things worse um, and creating some of the challenges that we have. You know, So I find it really disheartening if a family member of mine goes into a hospital and does not get seen, um, feels that like they're not being treated appropriately, um, is, is not being treated with respect. And then when I call and introduce myself as a physician, then things change. Mm-hmm. That shouldn't happen. Mm-hmm. You know, it shouldn't It shouldn't take a family member that's a physician for, for my family member to have uh, a- adequate care. I think that's an example of racism. Um, and that's just, you know, what I've seen in my own family. But we know that as recently as even 2016, a study showed that medical students and residents across the country sometimes still believe that black people experience pain differently than white people
0: um, that we have different
1: nerve <laughs> right. endings, right. Um, which is outrageous. <laughs> what, what absurd. Obsc- so, you know, <laughs>
0: they didn't, they didn't, they didn't <laughs> yeah,
1: take, so we have work to do.
0: They didn't take the gross anatomy that you and I took, you know, they just, they weren't there, you know, so, oh, well, you know, so, so. Right. Actually, do you wonder uh, where this, where
1: this came from?
0: <laughs> well, yeah, you do wonder, scratch your head kind of. Well, the thing is, is that you almost, well, I don't know if you've seen it in where you are in, in DC, but here in the West Coast, we've been offered a program over and over again lately, and I, I didn't even see it, but it's a program about how how the issue of color turns to it becomes a, a matter of power, and then the whole discussion of the societal situation they're in is it's 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 a situation of a power dynamic, and it seems like and what what the this this TV program. Reports, with at least in terms of their prom- promotions, is that white people have assumed that they have the right of power, the right of over, you know, overlord, overlordism. Excuse me. And so, of course, after all, we were a slave society at, at the country's birth, and so on. So there's, there's probably, I think we probably have to agree that there's probably a huge overhang, you might call it, from the, the slave period, from the idea that somehow white people have some kind of superior. Uh, position in, in 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 the world, and of course, it, it's convenient for the capitalist system to have, you know, winners and losers and so on. So we have this huge, huge, deep societal. It's not just just a, a bias and some sort of a look down your nose kind of thing, but it's it's a it's an elemental thing with regard to structural power. So, beside, so I I guess I'm. Bes- one wants to ab- assume that we humans are going to evolve and begin to be more loving and e- you know, e- equality-minded, but I'm not sure that necessarily is so. So, um, how, how, b- beside wishing it so, how, did, how do you suggest that people push back?
1: So it can't, I agree with you, it can't be just wishing for, for us to think kumbaya and get over the, the hate that is inside. Um, many of our, our neighbors, but what we can do is change the policies and practices of our institutions, both within the medical community as well as in society, uh, to to make sure that that racism is stopped from a policy level. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, in our medical schools, we're thinking about our admissions practices and and trying to you know, think about anti-racism in how we admit students and how we make sure they get into residency. Uh, we think about how we promote our faculty, um, making sure that policies across the board, even how we treat our patients. Because oftentimes we find out that maybe patients of different races are getting unequal care. So we have to look and look at our data and say, are we giving the same medications? Are we admitting the same, at the same rate? Are we referring at the same rate? Because if we don't look for these differences, we won't find them and we can't address them. Um, so that's what I know the medical community can do, but I know society we have to do the same thing on a larger scale.
0: Wow. Well, it's what you're suggesting is seems extraordinarily complicated to me. I, the 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 uh, the digging out the the you know getting into the the the, uh, the details of of whether it's prescription. Uh, I, mean, I, I mean, obviously computers are going to be enormously helpful in today's world. But, you know, tracking and and uh, monitoring these things, and of course, uh, you know, big organizations like Kaiser Permanente and probably large organizations like GW and other places, uh, the medical schools connected to your uh, organization, presumably they have uh, strategies for all these, and presumably people like you are busy uh, tweaking those strategies, you know, over and over to continue to improve on the institution's ability to Provide an equalization process. So, do you find that that I mean, you're in a position to know. So, do you find institutions, by and large, uh, besides sort of window dressing ways, are they, by and large, uh, embracing the the, the, the pr- this prospect of medical equality? Is that is that a widespread good in the general medical environment that you live in? I would say that we
1: are. We are all on that journey together, mm-hmm. and especially this year, there has been national recognition of, uh, of the importance of and the presence of systemic racism in our society and our role in the medical community. Mm-hmm. So our institutions have always had some efforts around diversity, equity, inclusion, but I do see an increased level of interest and commitment across the board starting with our association as well as all of our members are asking those questions and saying, what can we do? Now, will it be window dressing? I hope not. Mm -hmm. Um, But I do hope that um, I I am seeing some glimmers of hope, even from our students. Our medical students are demanding that there is an inclusion of anti-racism in the curriculum, a group called White Coats for Black Lives come out with a report card where they have uh, looked at medical school curriculum and said, this is what we want. And they've, they've graded our schools on this. Um, so that's a little bit of a nudge from our own students. And, mm-hmm. and uh, I think that that's just one step in the right direction.
0: Great. We need to take a break. We're talking to Malika Fair, the a physician from Washington, D.C. She's connected to the... Amer- the Association of American Medical Colleges is also emergency physicians connected to George Washington University Medical School. We'll be back with you in just a moment. Please stay tuned. And welcome back to Health Matters, Dr. Ned Hoke Today, joined by Dr. Malika Fair, she's a uh, senior director of the Health Equity and Partnerships and pro- uh, sh- uh, Health Equity Partnerships at the uh, Association of American Medical Colleges. She's from DC she's also an emergency physician and we've been talking about the well her partly her job really in terms of the uh, the establishment of equity uh, processes for medical schools uh, and institutions uh, for the black and brown communities and working on the biases. So let's let's move into the these issue of, of addressing the health disparities in the sense of, uh uh the biases issue so what we've heard in the public is there you know there's uh, bias training is kind of a operational activity of public facilities that the cops are doing it the uh, uh, you know whatever the, the you know the emergency medical people are doing it and so on uh bias training and the discovery of implicit bias and so on Help us break into that world of bias a little bit. Start to start our listeners to understand, and help us begin to understand the 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 hidden nature of the biases. And and of course, it's one thing to be a a white supremacist. I mean, there's no nothing hidden about that, you know. Uh, But at the same time, we're talking most of the time. We're not talking about that. We're talking about the unspoken. The the, uh, the 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 uh, attitudinal biases and so on. So I realize this is a a, a very l- large and dense kind of topic. But if you could start to break into that place for us and help us begin to ourselves to question ourselves, what what should be asking? What should we be asking ourselves? What should we be asking our institutions to uncover these these situations that we may not be aware of that are not obvious on the surface. So we.
1: All have biases. Um, we were born with them. We developed them as we are, you know, walking through society, living our, leaving our best lives. And I think that's part of it is understanding that this is not something that is uh, unique to any an individual person. But recognizing what our biases are, we know that there is, in general, a bias towards or pre- preferring white people, um, white patients, or white people in general, and. And when we recognize that, especially in the medical context, then we have to use strategies to remove that bias, especially if we're um, in situations where we're dealing with patients of color. Um, You know, you might have heard it said that you can just take one implicit bias test or take one course and then you're cured of your bias and that's
0: just
1: not that true <laughs> yeah. we know that just, right. um, but i do think it's a good place to start it's a well, good that, that, place that, to, I, was, to I was kind of
0: where we are i was kind of wondering that i was kind of wondering if there was a, if that was a place to start really in other words is it it do maybe you could tell us how you do it actually how do you how do you dig into this with students? How do you dig into this with organizations? And in other words, one thing, well, I shouldn't, I don't, actually, I want to stay away from organizations because that, that, would be, that becomes a whole different level. But in terms of individuals, t- tell us about how you can penetrate this bubble. How do you, how do you help people uncover these things within themselves? Right, so they can,
1: um, you can go online and even Google the implicit association test and take that test. Ah,
0: okay. um, A lot
1: of institutions are offering uh, offering an implicit bias course. I would encourage people to do that, and not just once, do it many times. Okay. Um, and also, you want to find a course that gives you information about how do you mitigate your bias in real time and give you some strategies to use on a day-to-day basis. Um, and, you know, an example is if you see someone and you know that you have a stereotype about them, you tell yourself the opposite stereotype. Mm. You see that person, and mm. you think, "Oh, they probably are unemployed." And you tell yourself, "Oh, that person is a CEO." <laughs> um, and <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> because that changes things, you know. Right. Um, another example is um, when you walk into a patient's room that you you remove the power differential. So there is a power differential when you're walking in, and you're the physician, and you're the one telling them what to do. Right. But if you if you ask questions and you make it a partnership, and you say, "Well, why are you here today? What would you like to get out of this um, encounter? What are your goals?" Hmm. That helps to remove bias as well because you are leveling the playing field and removing uh, removing that power differential and having more of a conversation, hearing the patient's voice.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And of course, in the eight in the eight minutes that every that the physicians get to do their you know their their difficult work, it's a lot of times it's probably a little bit difficult to get into these nuanced kind of conversations, uh, and so you have to be pretty efficient at it. So uh, your literature here talks about, um, let's see, there was a, the, the uh, university at Wayne State, for instance, and in Detroit Health Departments, and they talked about the, the. Uh, let's see, let me get see if I get this right. Um, I was, no, I'm skipping ahead here. Um, so this, let's talk about the social determinants of health and how the, uh, how the, the, the biases intersect with, with those issues.
1: Uh, sure. So, you know, once, it's really interesting to talk about social determinants of health because I think over the last 10 years we've gotten more savvy with that phrase mm-hmm. and we're understanding a little bit more about what that means. Um, but we can just stop where it's comfortable. So in the medical community, we, we say social determinants of health, but what we really mean is social needs, mm. and this is what I mean by that. Right. If a patient comes in and they, you know, they do not have a place to, to go, you know, they don't have a home to live in or they don't have a meal, and we say, oh, that patient is experiencing homelessness and they're experiencing food insecurity, mm-hmm. we can give them a hot meal and we can give them you know, directions for the nearest shelter and we feel good about ourselves because we've met their social need. But tomorrow that need comes back. Okay. And so we are just putting a Band-Aid on the situation, which we should, we should definitely try to meet those social needs. But as a medical community, we have to think about how do we address the big determinants of health? What can we do to address housing? In, in our local cities uh, and, and contribute to affordable housing. That's not something that you usually hear doctors or hospitals talking about, but we are really huge institutions with um, a footprint in our local communities. And there's examples, even in at Denver, where they actually turned one of their office buildings into affordable housing units. Um, and in Detroit, uh, when, uh, Henry Ford also was a part of doing some affordable housing and uh, low-income housing in Detroit as well. And I think that's where we have to go as a medical community and think more upstream. Um, you know, how can we invest in affordable housing? How can we ensure that people are getting jobs in our hospitals? Uh, what can we do to influence the education locally and work in partnership with our communities to do so? Um, this is that's where the conversation I think needs to
0: shift to. Mm-hmm. Well. And so, to do that, you're gonna, thats going to require a, a great deal of sort of citizen participation. This is not something that the medical community, as vast and as wealthy as it is, it, it is unlikely to, uh, to w- without very very strong local and, and citizen support, to really be able to get a great big uh, ch- uh, activity in that area. So, talk a little bit about more about the institutional. Uh, or groups in various parts of the of the country since you're connected to this uh, national organization presumably you're in touch with some of these things give us some examples of, of social determinant work that that various medical institutions uh, of whatever type are doing and and you know kind of help us see ahead what what is that what what does ahead look like and so give us some current examples of what people are doing and then As you you look out into the future, how do you see those things evolving?
1: Sure. And I think that you hit on something really important in your question and comment is that none of this can be done on our own. Even though we are major institutions and contribute to the economic vitality of the region, we can't just go in and decide that we are going to solve the city's problems. Problems on housing and <laughs> right. food deserts, and um, you know, stop right. unemployment. And even if we try to do those things on our own, it would be we would probably do more harm than good. So you know, we have to partner with our local communities uh, to do so, and with our public health departments and other sectors of society. Um, you know, I, I, I'm going to give an example from actually my local um, hospital that I'm on a board of. Um, I'm on the board at United Medical Center, which is a community hospital here in Mm D.C., and, you know, we have conversations all the time about, you know, what it means to take care of a population in D.C. that is, it's in a low-income area, it's predominantly African-American, some significant and really poor health outcomes in the city, and, you know, we could have conversations about housing and food and all the other social determinants, but what we hear from our community members is that they want jobs. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's hard to have a place to live and it's hard to find food to eat if you don't have a job. Mm. And so our hospital is working, you know, with community members to ensure that, um, that job postings are readily available for community members, that we have job fairs in the community, um, that there is an understanding and a preference for those who are you know, within our city and within our community to obtain jobs at our hospital and I think that's just low-hanging fruit that hospitals across the country can do. And, you know, if we we can think big picture, and we can think about all these uh, these ways to help people get healthy. But we really should be seeing our hiring practices mm-hmm. um, and making sure that those are community partnered and, and giving uh, the community a chance to to have employment and also to advance and grow within our institution.
0: Mm-hmm. So. Is it conceivable to you that this uh, pandemic moment? It, it, do you uh, imagine uh, uh, and, and is imagining going on? That's really more my question. Is imagining going on how we can uh, leverage this this situation of the pandemic to really make some pretty large leaps in the areas of your concern? And and, and sell some, if, something, if there is there anything like that going on that we should we we should hear about? Let us hear about it. I mean, what what is this particular moment, uh, of, and and the crisis of that of, of its own? I mean, they, one could just could look at the the pandemic crisis and just isolate it within itself. But a number of people that I that I hear are talking about how we could use this. For instance, this could be the moment when uh, you know big changes in in, in healthcare delivery might take place because of this unique situation. So what of the things that you're concerned about, what does this particular moment seem pregnant or potentially pregnant for, and how do we manifest the, the best of that potential?
1: So this moment is giving us an opportunity to, to do something where we've recognized there's been a problem all along. So this is not the first time that we've talked about health disparities, um, gross, you know, health inequities across our country, but because it was in our face, it was a really short period of time that we saw that these numbers were escalating really fast in black and brown communities. It brought a national attention. Now layered on top of this realization were um, what we saw with national protests with the death of George Floyd and Ahmaud Aubrey and Breonna Taylor. So those two, um, the, the, the protests, the recognition of um, you know, the systemic racism in our society, as well as what was happening with the pandemic, what's currently happening, is giving our nation a window of opportunity to act. And we're seeing some of that action. I hope that it continues. Unfortunately, the, the media um, conversation around uh, racism in our society has died down largely. Our conversation is mostly around the pandemic, and so that's why it's really important that we... Continue to talk about the inequities that are are there in the pandemic and what we can do about them, um, which is related to racism in our society.
0: Mm-hmm. So, you you see it as a moment. You see that it, it it's a it's it's a chance for there to be a greater recognition. And you and of course the the, uh, the the colossal failure of the federal government to participate properly, at least from the point of view of a lot of us anyway to participate properly in terms of the pandemic, then it puts a, a, a sort of a bad cloud on the idea of any kind of awakened, uh, enlightened uh, actions on the part of uh, in federal institutions in uh, t- terms of supporting what we're talking about. But at the same time, the pandemic is not gonna, gonna be here for a while and there's still an opportunity, almost you might say to take advantage of it in terms of really you know, prospering uh, is some important changes that that are important to your people, your people. So, circling, to leaving that whole global topic for a minute, coming back to the individual uh, client and the individual patient. There are those who say that um, it's just, again one of these things that has been said out there. Just interested in your perspective as a practicing physician. They're saying because the black and brown folks are. Are robbed of the opportunity of of, of uh, uh, vitamin D because of the melanin in their skin, that somehow that this is a is a significant factor to their their uh, susceptibility to uh, the virus. Is there any reality to that in your opinion?
1: So I am not familiar with uh, the literature on vitamin D enough to speak about that. I do know that um, CDC, the former um, director Tom Frieden, did write something about the importance of vitamin D for all of us. And I see it as part of healthy living in general, that we should be making sure that we are not vitamin deficient, we should have um, healthy diets, we should get exercise. These are things that we can all do to make sure that our bodies are the best prepared to fight off any illness, especially the pandemic. Um, But in terms of, you know, susceptibility in the black and brown community, you know, again, we have this thought that, that race is, Based in biology and genetics, and it's really a social construct. Um, there's we all have such varying uh, differences in our genetics in terms of you know w- what is a black person? Is it someone who's had you know one parent that's black, uh, uh, half you know a person who's has their parent is half black or quarter black? Does that make them black? And are, are we all do we all have the same risk? I mean, it's very difficult to compare um, all of us just by saying that we're all black or we're all brown. Mm-hmm. Um, so. I think it's more important that we talk about the social construct and and what what society has done to minoritize and marginalize groups and make the group more susceptible to illnesses because we're not getting equal care. We're not getting equal access to care. We don't have the same insurance. We uh, We don't have the same access to education or employment, or we don't live in neighborhoods that have walkable areas. They're not safe.
0: Mm-hmm. So that's
1: where I think the conversation needs to go in terms of susceptibility. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, we should all take our vitamins. We should all eat well. Um, but what if we don't have food to eat? Right. You know, what right. if, what if we don't have – the grocery store is more, more than a mile away and that's considered a food desert. Right. Um, so, so that's, I think, where our conversation should go.
0: Okay. So for our listeners who might want to know more and hear more information from you about you or – your work uh, or the work of, you, of the things that you're seeking to prosper. Do you have any websites for us, or do you have any places to take our, li- our listeners into greater depth in terms of what we've been talking about?
1: Absolutely. So please visit us at our association website at aamc.org. Um, on that website, you will find several topics around health equity, health disparities, diversity, and inclusion. Um, you'll see recent statements around systemic racism, police brutality, um, and what we're calling for is national data collection on race and ethnicity with regard to the pandemic. Um, and hopefully, you've all uh, would have seen the recent roadmap, and that's a call for the nation to reset, um, you know, our approach to ending this pandemic and including in that is a recommendation around addressing health disparities. So all that can be found at AAMC.org.
0: Wow. Well, that's wonderful because, of course, that's what we've really been talking about or tried to be talking about. And so, Dr. Malika Fair, it's been a great pleasure to have you with us today on Health Matters. Thank you for taking the time for us.
1: Thank you for having me on your show.
0: Okay. Good day now. And welcome back to Health Matters, Dr. Ned Hoke today. Now we're going to take the next uh Part of the program to begin a reading from a book called "Living Well at Others' Expense: The Hidden Costs of Western Prosperity," and I haven't. I've been trying to figure out how to talk about this book, and and uh, and I haven't been able to do that. So what I'm just going to do is I'm going to read from it a little bit before we conclude today. So, the name of this chapter is "We Have to Talk." We can't go on like this. Structural violence is solid. It does not show. It is essentially static. It is the tranquil waters. This is a quote from John Galtung in Violence, Peace. and and Another quote is from uh, Michael Mann. Ordinary citizens will have to change their lifestyles to avert disaster, but disaster appears abstract and far away until it suddenly, or correct that, until it actually happens. Of course, here we are in the middle of a, of a fire uh, disaster, but anyway, it it goes on. Inequality, what is inequality? In the last few years, inequality has once again become a social issue. It began in the summer of 2013 with Thomas Piketty's monumental opus Capital in the 21st Century in which the French economist identified an ironclad development law of modern capitalism. Without political invention, a capitalist normality becomes established in which the rate of return on capital will tend to outstrip the rate of growth in the economy as whole at whole. The profits from capital asset, of assets absorb the distributable wealth. Then, in a, di- a disproportionate amount of the increased prosperity will be enjoyed by those who are, are, are already rich, while the lower-income households will remain out in the cold. Left to its own logic, capitalism will produce a steadily growing income and asset disparity, a trend that Piketty describes in detail for the affluent societies of Europe and North America, particularly the neoliberal era since the 1970s. While Piketty's study raised considerable dust, the question of inequality was covered by editorial writers all over the world, particularly after the publication of the English translation in early 2014. The author also attracted a good deal of criticism from less social, democratically oriented colleagues. However, the findings were officially confirmed May of 2015, at least as far as the assessment of the most recent distribution trends are concerned. Never before in the history of the OECD as inequality in our uh, country has been as great as it is today," said the Secretary-General uh, uh, of the organization that brings together the developed industrial nations in his preparations of the OECD Social Report. The aid organization's Oxfam went a step further when, in 2016, at every year in the run-up to the World Economic Forum in Davos, contrasted the unequal distribution of wealth in the OECD states with the social inequity on a global scale. According to the Swiss financial services provider Credit Suisse, the wealthiest 1% of the world's population possess almost as much as the rest, and half the global increase in prosperity since the start of the millennium has been enjoyed by the 1% of this, of, of mankind. Oxfam attracted even more attention a year later when it pointed out demonstrably that in 2016, for, fortunes of the eight wealthiest people in the world were the equivalent of the total wealth of the poorer half of, of humanity. In other words, the material possessions of 3.5 billion people two, two years earlier, the 80th wealth, wealthiest persons would have had to pool their resources to achieve this figure. In 2010, as much as three hundred and eighty-eight of them. <clears throat> Along with the obligatory public outcry, so few, so much, the academic experts immediately responded by pointing to the inaccessibility, excuse me, the inadmissibility of the <coughs> comparing Apple's private fortunes to Pear's national income and hence Oxfam's start, uh, startling figures. Instead of a kept couple of handfuls or a few dozen, there still insisted there were several hundred wealthy uh, households, as in earlier years, who shared half the global economic prosperity. German economics wise men were particularly took up arms to provide scholarly arguments to counter the uncontrolled talk of the growing inequality and gave voice to, the econ- to economic reason. Um, for example uh, anyway it goes on so this is kind of why I brought this book in now because of course we've been talking to a, a very significant proponent of the American Medical Colleges uh, Association we just spoke to earlier in the program who were talking about social inequality and, and and social determinants and of course what what she's up against and what all the work that she's up against is the very thing that this book is talking about, living well at others' expense, the hidden costs of Western prosperity. And in this case, prosperity is about capitalism. So back to the book itself. Uh, for example, Clemens first the former professor of economics at Oxford University and now president of the respected Institute of Economic Research in Munich, stated that global inequality was no longer such a big issue. According to World Bank standards, just under 1.3 percent of the world's population in 2012 lived in extreme poverty. In other words, with insufficient income to survive, compared to 44 percent in 1981. Let's do, let's do that again. 1.3 percent. Write that. It is 13. I was wrong. 13 percent of the world's population in 2012 uh, were in extreme poverty, uh, and then in uh, in 1981 it was 44% and 57% only 20 years earlier so there were no uh, there were no more than 720 million people living uh below the absolute minimum of existence that's still too many but but enormous progress has been made progress had been enormous according to fused not only because the bottom end of the scale but also with regard to the the mean, in 1980, the average per capita income of the household developed in developing c- countries was around 14 percent of that of industrial countries. Today, it is around 23 percent. Even even if, for the sake of simplicity, the rich the richer poor are combined with the really poor, in one fifth of the average income of the affluent uh, c- countries, one tenth of the income disparity. Made good in three decades should be, strike that, should the upcoming nations of the world consider themselves to be on the right road of prosperity and well being. This, this at least is what is suggested by the new economic master narrative that has received such great public acclaim. In the, in the last few years. The new elite consensus that the global prosperity gap is progressively narrowing was fueled by Piketty himself when the, he spoke of this international bestseller of the steady progress of catching up by the late industrial societies. The world clearly seems to have entered into a phase in which the rich and the poor countries are converging in, in- income. At around the same time, uh, Piketty's French colleague, Francois Longname, uh, chief economic economist of the World Bank, came to a similar conclusion, po- uh, pointing to historical turning point in global inequity They would do nothing less than effectively re-equilibriating equ- the standards of living between the countries. The main protagonist and most important uh, uh coiner of catchwords in the convergence of this, this, of this discussion, however, was the second leading world bank economist, um, Ronke Milanovic, now at the City University of New York. Anyway, this is pretty heavy going, but um, it turns out that global capitalism is doing us in. I guess that's the bottom line. It's providing a lot of support But at the same time, it's also getting more and more disparate. And the more and more disparate thats what Dr. Malika Fair was pushing back against. We were happy to have you. And I'm still working on how to bring this uh, new book into my uh, program here, which I haven't accomplished it yet. But thank you for tuning in again this week. We'll be seeing you again next time. Thank you for listening.